when I was a younger Christian, I, I would have really have, had valued, I would have valued highly my pastor telling me how he thought about certain things and telling me his thought process. So what I wanted to do just for a few minutes quickly before we get into Matthew 24 was give you a, a peek into my brain and how, I, how I've been thinking about certain topics. Before this year, before all the COVID stuff happened, I never would have considered uh, trying to have any sort of strong on, online presence. That never would have been a priority for, for me. And to be honest, it still isn't. It's not like I'm trying to compete on the YouTube market or anything like that. But, you know, last week we, I, I tried to do the, I put the Bible next to the video. And I even struggled to you know, right, keep up with the verses um, because I'm still, I have my Bible right in front of me. So it's a brand new thought for me to put the Bible on the screen. I am old school this way, you know. The way I got discipled, the way I, I grew up spiritually was, man, you spend time in a book, and in this case, the book, right? And there was something special about, about my Bible. I got, I got my Bible. This is my book. I love this book. You know, I write in it. I cry over it. This is now my fourth Bible. There's something special, I think, about getting to spend time in that particular book. I get used to where the verses are on the page. It helps me learn. It helps, uh, it just, it gets so personal. And therefore, whenever I think about you sitting on the other side of the screen and possibly not taking advantage of thumbing to this or that verse, and, and I mentioned it last week. I, I don't want to make people spiritually lazy by, here, let me, let me just show you the verses and then you don't see it in your Bible. And then I got to thinking about that. And I got to, how, is it wrong that you look at the verse on the screen? I, I have to make a difference between my preference and what is special to me, right? This gets into tradition. What is my preference and tradition is, have a book open in front of you. Learn it, love it, make it your own. There's something I think very special, very intimate about the pages of the book. But that there's no verse in the Bible that says you have to have a book opened in front of you. You think about it for several hundred years, Christians were learning the Bible and they didn't even know how to read. Right? James 1, you see some evidence of this, not only in James, but other places. Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. The reason James wrote it like that, I believe, is because a lot of people in the first century couldn't read. And therefore, they were just hearing the book. Now, mind you, they would hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it so much that they were able to hide it in their heart. And they did put it into practice. So their lives were still changed. The word of God was still powerful. It still ran swiftly. It was sharper than a two-edged sword, even though they didn't have books back then, right? Like we do now. It's not like they had printing presses or anything like that. So the reason I'm sharing this with you is because I want you to see that even myself, 20 years ago when I started off in the ministry, I never would have dreamed. If you would have come to me and said, listen, one day you'll put the Bible on the screen and use a different format for how you teach, if I can, if I can put it like that. I would have said, there's no way. I, 
I would have thought of that as the 20-year younger version of me. I would have said, that's compromised, that's wrong. But then the the older, more mature, more experienced me looks at this and says, now, now let, me, let me try to look at this from a different angle. Let me not just look at this from what I would prefer, but what, what does the Lord actually require in this situation? And then try to make a decision based on how I can most effectively minister to people. And trying to enforce my preference, I don't think that aids your spiritual growth. I don't. Now, it's my advice. I do think there's something special and intimate, as I've mentioned, about having your Bible. You carry it to church. You carry it you know, everywhere you go. You read it when you have a time. It, there's something special, I think, about looking at it in a book. But that's just my opinion. And I have to make a difference between that and a biblical command. Now, some of you are preparing for the ministry, right? Some of you, you're joining us, you're in the Bible school, you just want to learn more about the Bible. And man, we need more solidly grounded church members. So thank God for you. Some of you, God is going to call you into a full-time ministry. Some of you, God might send across the ocean somewhere, right? We've seen this happen. God's already done it in our church. God might send you to some other place here in South Africa, where technology is not going to be an option in your ministry. And you're going to have to know, you're going to have to look at what you have access to and say, now, how can I most effectively get the word of God to these people? Is it by putting a book in their hands? Do I have to verbally read it to them, right? Maybe they can't read. Do I have to teach them how to read? In the case of Ivan and Mahi, they are having to put together an alphabet so that they can put the Word of God into written form. And then they're going to have to teach the people that alphabet, teach them how to read. So you see, there's a lot more that you have to consider than just well, what works best for me. So as life goes on, as God puts you in whatever place He wants to for the ministry, you'll have to consider these things. There'll be challenges that you will have to pray about. So I appreciate you folks being patient with me as I try to adapt and and find the mind of God on these on these issues. But I thought I'd just share that with you. It's been on my heart all week. Just wanted to let you know how I think about it. If you guys have questions about that type of stuff, so why do we do it this way? Or if you have suggestions, you know, that why, why can't we try this or that in the Bible school? Um, th- this might help. It might make things, it might, uh, might be able to get more done. I'm open to these suggestions. I may, you may not want to put them in the chat section right here, right now, but please know that my door is open for those things. And I'm more than happy to hear you out. All right, that being said, if you have your Bibles, and I do hope that you do, my personal preference, you can open it to Matthew 24. I'm going to switch this now to this version of the broadcast. And uh, I'm going to ask you to start in Matthew 24, verse 15. I want to get a head start, a running start at this passage. And um, before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll... We'll get our heads, our running start, and to get some momentum as we start again into the chapter. Father, thank you this evening that we can gather around the Word, whether it's sitting in front of us in a book, whether it's on the screen. Lord, we want it to end up in our hearts. We want to live it out. Lord, we want to make use of what you've given us. Help us, Lord, to take this time seriously. Please speak to us. 
I believe we can learn so much tonight. Please, God, there's so much to cover. Help us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, real quick, uh, here is the outline again for chapter 24, uh, verses 1 and 2. Stones everywhere, referring to the temple. Verses 3 to 35, we're in the middle of that right now. Signs of the end. Remember, the disciples asked about the end of the world. And then verses 36 to 51, Lord willing, we shall finish tonight. Uh, Stay ready. Stay ready was Jesus's admonition. So verse number 15, Jesus said, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Now notice, you'll notice here, I don't, in my Bible, that I have in front of me, it's just black and white. I don't have the words of Christ in red. Um, The parentheses, as I see them on the screen here, it's as if Matthew added them. Now, I'm, I'm not sure, right? The people who put the words in red, it's not like Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, put certain words in red and others in black. You understand most editions of the Bible, they, they put the words in red so you know what Christ said it. But I, I'm i not so sure Christ didn't say that. I, I kind of think that he did. Whoso readeth, let him understand. I think he's giving you a footnote, to, more or less, to say if you want to know more about Daniel's prophecy, Listen to what I have to say. Um, So he's telling them one of the signs of the end, you're going to see this abomination of desolation, this idol, stand in the holy place. Uh, Verse uh, verse 16, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Uh, Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. What's the point? Man, you got to run. This is urgent. The Antichrist has risen from the dead at this point. He is attacking all Jews. He's trying to wipe them off the map. You read this clearly in Revelation 12. They run to the wilderness uh, where they have a place prepared of God. And I think in the Old Testament, you have a perfect story that allegorizes this, um, and that is Lot's wife. Jesus even uses that that idea in Luke 17 when he's talking about the end times. He'll talk about the days of Noah and then he talks about the days of Lot. And he, and he says there, very short but powerful statement, remember Lot's wife because they were told to run out of the city but she turned back. And that's what Jesus is warning them about. When you see this happen, get out. Don't, there's no time to turn back. Uh, so verse 20, but pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, because obviously that would slow down their, their running. Uh, forgive me. Verse 21, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And I mentioned last week, if you're familiar with history, if you're familiar with the, the history of war, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, then you can truly appreciate how powerful that verse is, that this time of tribulation. Now, Jesus is aiming at the latter half of the seven years of Daniel's 70th week. It's bad in the first half, but the second half is especially difficult. And the Antichrist, by this point, right, he is claimed to be God, and he, be, he begins to attempt to exterminate all, all Jewish people and and all believers, period. Anybody who doesn't submit to him as God, he is out for blood. So verse 22, and except those days should be shortened, 
There should no flesh be saved. No flesh be saved. Now, remember last week we talked briefly about the whole preterist thing? The preterists think that all of this chapter was fulfilled by 70 AD. But the events of 70 AD and everything that led up to that wouldn't affect all flesh, right? But Jesus is saying, if, if these days aren't shortened, no flesh should be saved. Now, this fits perfectly with the futuristic view of this chapter and the book of Revelation. When you read Revelation, you read not millions, billions of people dying. It, you, you talk about one-fourth of the world's population being wiped out in, in one place. And then in another place, a third of the world's population. And then it happens again, I think. Another third is taken off the planet in another time. It's massive, the things that are happening there. So it, it makes sense to think of this in a futuristic way. You try to put it all in the past. It's hard to make that work. He says, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. All right, two things we need to look at in this verse. Number one, the word elect. It shows up here in verse uh, 22. And then also, we're going to see it again. Where is it? Uh, in verse 31. So let me take just a moment. And, and please, again, I would encourage you to turn in your Bible to the verse just so that you get used to finding verses. But I am going to find it with you on the screen and read it for you. Um, Isaiah 45 and verse 4. I want you to see when Jesus is talking about the elect, he is not referring to the body of Christ. The body of Christ has not even started yet. So when he talks about the elect, right? We, you cannot take the book of Ephesians and any book in the New Testament, Paul's writings, Peter's writings, and read it back into this. When Jesus says elect, we have to work with what God has already said about who is elect. Now, elect is chosen, eight ferkisen. These they're chosen out, a special group. Who are they? Isaiah 45, verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect. I have even called thee by name, I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. He's talking about Cyrus in the chapter, but you can see here Israel is called God's elect. So chronologically, right, if you work with progressive revelation, when you speak about the elect, who up until the time Jesus is saying this, which group of people has been specially chosen out by God? It's the nation of Israel. And again, if you go to Revelation 12 and you look at who the great red dragon is attacking, it's that woman with the 12 star. It's Israel. So contextually, it works very well to say that. All right, now I'm going to show you one other thing about this, this verse in Matthew 24. Let me just read it for you again at the, at the end of it. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened, okay, shall be shortened. And now, guys, forgive me, I want to make sure I got the right verse here. Um, I'm going to show it to you in Mark's gospel, okay, same context, but this is how, how Mark recorded it. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, past tense, it has to be Israel, the church hasn't even been started yet, the body of Christ, that is. It says, whom he hath chosen, he hath, he hath, past tense, shortened the days. 
Well, in Matthew 24, it's in the future tense. Those days shall be shortened. In Mark, he hath shortened the days. So which one is right? Both. Both are correct. In one sense, you have to think that God, when before the foundation of the world, he's making plans. And as we've already talked about, even within Matthew 24, in this passage, Jesus says, pray that your flight's not in the winter on the Sabbath day. We know that there are some, some fluid concepts to the timing of all this. As, as far as when, do, when does Daniel's 70th week actually start? I don't know if, if God has set a certain date and picked a certain day on the calendar says it has to happen then. But one thing that God has determined, and listen, when God determines something, his counsel can't be overthrown. But when it comes to things like who's going to be saved, who's going to be lost, there's nothing in the scripture that I know of, right? Nothing that convinces me that God has made that decision for us. And when it comes to the, to the tribulation time, I don't think God has chosen the specific date in which it'll start, but he has determined that once they do, they're only going to last a certain amount of time. So when we look back in, if you want to call it eternity past, look into the mind of God, those days have already been shortened because in God's mind, he predetermined that once they start, they're only going to last this long. But chronologically speaking, time has not gotten there yet. So that's where Matthew's gospel would fit. So Mark's gospel, we're, t we're looking into the foreordained plan of God for how long the tribulation time, the great tribulation, the, the three and a half years, it's only going to be that short time. But then Matthew gives us the chronological aspect of it. Those days shall be shortened. Once they get here, they're, they're not going to take that long. Um, let me give you a, a verse on this as well. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12. Uh, we read here about the devil falling from, from heaven. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Now, we just, we don't have, well, we do have time to scroll up just a little bit, see this passage here. <laughs> now that I'm doing it like this, I got the time. Uh, look at verse six down there at the bottom, Revela Revelation 12, six. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. 1260 days, which equals 42 months, which equals three and a half years. So those, that's the shortened time. If God had decided to let the Antichrist, and you know the, this is the devil incarnate now, if he lets this just go on and on and on, no flesh should be saved. That's how brutal this time would be. All right, I'm going to bring you back now to Matthew 24. All right, and... Let's pick it up in verse 23. Then, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. I think in the back of the disciples' mind, and I mentioned this last time, when they asked the question, what are the signs of thy coming? I don't think they fully understood the whole idea of Jesus coming back from heaven. Right? They didn't fully grasp the idea of him dying yet or resurrecting. So I think he's addressing maybe one of their misconceptions that they were laboring under. 
that guys don't think that I'm going to be hiding away somewhere on this earth. So if somebody says to you, there's Christ, or, or he's hiding over there, don't believe that. Now bear in mind, there's one thing, there are two, two aspects to this chapter. I want, let me go ahead and point it out now. I'll leave it up here for a moment. There are two main points that Jesus is getting across in this chapter. Number one, don't be deceived. That's why he's explaining all of these signs that come before his second coming. He doesn't want them to fall into the trap of some man uh, saying, this is Christ follow this guy. So he's laying this out so that they can see all these indicators and go, okay, all right, let's not get caught up in some guy's conspiracy theory. So don't be deceived. And number two, stay ready. And we'll deal more with that towards the end of the chapter. But in verse 23, if any man shall say unto you, lo, here is Christ or there, believe it not, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now again, I've forgotten that the word elect shows up in this verse as well, but it's good that you now know when we're talking about the elect, we're not talking about a group of saved people in the body of Christ. However, there is a great lesson for we who are saved and in the body of Christ. We can still learn something from this. But... I believe what's happening here is Jesus is is warning them, be careful, because the devil, these false prophets, the Antichrist, they are going to try to, they're going to aim at even, they're going to aim at the people of God, the people that are closest to God. The ones that God has chosen out and said, I will, I will take care, I will oversee you. If the Antichrist can convince some of these Jews to follow him, he's targeting that crowd. Now think about this. You can see in the, in the verse the words, it were, if it were possible. The way that reads, especially with modern English, we read that almost like a hypothetical, as if to say it's not really possible, but the devil's going to try anyway. But those two, it were, those are in italics. And a lot of the modern versions don't include those words. In Matthew and in Mark, it, it's both in italics in both places, which if you don't understand what the italics are there for, the King James translators, when they put words in italics, what they're saying is we don't have any Greek evidence for this. But they put it in there just to uh, make the, the verse flow better. Most of the cases of italics, that's what it's for. So if you want to read it as if possible, I think you're still going to understand the verse uh, perfectly well. Either way, I believe the story is, is going to turn out the same here. The devil, why would he be wasting time trying to deceive people if it was not possible to deceive them? The, the devil, listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to play devil's advocate, but he's not stupid. If there are certain people that cannot be deceived, why would he waste time trying to deceive them? It is possible to deceive even God's chosen nation, the people within that, uh, within that group. For that matter, as it pertains to the body of Christ, I don't think Jesus is addressing that here, but as it pertains to New Testament church-age Christians, we can also be deceived. This is a legitimate warning for, for us as well. Um, 
Let me give you a, a couple verses that would speak to that. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, we read here that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The way that's worded, it's very clear, I think, that Paul realizes he's, he's addressing the body of Christ. He's addressing saved people. They can be deceived. And he's saying we need to grow up and get well-grounded. We need to speak the truth in love to people so that when these liars come around, we don't get blown about with it. Uh, I'll give you another instance of it. Galatians 1 verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. They were deceived. They got saved and then they got deceived. Um, I'll give you another one here. I will, I promise, in just a moment. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. If they're departing from the faith, that means they, were, they had the faith and they got deceived. They gave heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now notice what Paul says here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Well, I'll probably read down to verse 12. We're reading here directly about the Antichrist. So this passage you really need to pay attention to because it speaks directly to what we're reading about in Matthew 24. It's, it's warning the people. It, it's, it's a warning about the same time frame. Jesus says, watch out for false Christ, false prophets. They're going to they're gonna show great signs and wonders and those signs and wonders are going to be so convincing that if, it, if it's possible, right, even some of the elect might be drawn away by this. Uh, so let's look at this passage here. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9. Even him... Now, forgive me, I, just, I need to show you some context, don't I? Um, you can see the mystery of iniquity, verse 7. Okay, let me... There we go. You can see verse 7, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. It's working now. There are deceivers going out now. There are false Christs, false prophets, uh, false gospels, right? People are preaching another Jesus. That, that's happening even in our day. The mystery of iniquity doth already work until he, uh, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. I've taught you in discipleship. I believe that's the Antichrist being assassinated. Verse 8, and then shall that wicked, capital W, that's the devil incarnate, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Do you see how this fits perfectly with Matthew 24? It says that they'll show great signs and wonders. Um, Verse 10, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. So the latter half of what I've just read you, it is aimed at lost people, right? They rejected the truth. That's why they're in the mess that they're in. But we can see that the Antichrist is going to use signs and lying wonders. Now, it is a bona fide miracle, but it is, 
The miracle has been produced to confirm a lie. What was the purpose of Jesus using miracles in his ministry? What was the purpose of the apostles using miracles in their ministry? Uh, let me give you a, a, a biblical answer to that. Mark chapter 16 and verse 20, we read this. He says, and, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Now, here, here's what you really got to see, I believe, about Matthew 24, verse 23. Or uh, 24, verse 24, sorry. What I think is really important about that is that these false Christs and false prophets, they use great signs and wonders. And that's all that they use. They do not, they cannot line up their message with the preserved truth that God has been revealing through his bona fide prophets down through the ages. It won't line up. Now, forgive me, I'm going to target in on one group here, but I, I just, I'm convinced this is true. The modern day charismatic movement, the whole word, word of faith movement, all of that, this emphasis on signs and wonders and see the miracle. People, I think it is conditioning people, even believers, as we push into these end days, people, once they see some sort of what looks like a miracle, then they just go with it. It must be God. And that's not how you do it. Miracles were used in the ministry of Christ and in the apostolic ministry to confirm the word. So what you have to do is First, verify the message before, before you even think about, is this a bona fide miracle, right? It's not that you have to ignore it, but if the message doesn't line up, well, then you can just mark that preacher off the list. He, he can't be telling you the truth. It doesn't match what God has already revealed. Now, we can see this in the, in the ministry of Christ. Let me point this out. This, I, this is worth taking a moment to make sure we're, we're clear on this. Jesus, when he started his ministry, he said this, Think not, I'm in Matthew 5, verse 17, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Notice that Jesus, when he starts his ministry, he's doing signs and miracles. But he refers the people back to the Scripture. And he says, guys, I've come to fulfill that book that, that God's preserved, the law, the, the Old Testament. So if you want to check me out, open up God's book, and you can verify not only my message, but my miracles. Because in Isaiah 35 and in some other places, it was listed out what kind of miracles he would be doing. Right? So Jesus turned to the scripture for his final authority. Uh, let me show you another place where this comes through really clear. Jesus in John 5, verse 32, he says, There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. So Jesus says, if you want to verify that I'm the true Messiah, what about John? John the Baptist is uh, a witness for me. Verse 34, But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. So he says, I'm not leaning completely on John the Baptist, but you do recognize that he was a, a genuine prophet of God, so you have to consider what he had to say. 
Verse 35, he was a burning and a shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness. Now notice, there are certain things that we can turn to as evidence of the truth. Some things will be stronger proof. It will provide a greater testimony. Jesus acknowledged that. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. So he says, look at my miracles. Look at my ministry. It, that, that is part of verifying who he is, but it's not the end of the story. Verse 37, And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. He says, The reason you guys cannot tell that I am the real Messiah is because the word that God has already revealed, the Old Testament, you guys haven't hid that in your heart. You guys haven't studied your Bible. And that's why you can't tell the real thing when you see it. So then he, he sends them, or he refers them to the final authority. So there's four things in this passage. John, the miracles, the Father from heaven said it. And then verse 39, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Study your Bible. Take the life of Jesus, take what he did, take what he said, and compare it to the scriptures, and you'll see that it lines up perfectly. And then you can verify that he's the real Christ. So as it pertains to Matthew 24, how do we verify if somebody is a genuine prophet or not? We can't re rely only on the miracles. We have to, and it's of greater importance to look at the message. Does it line up with scripture? Verse number 25 uh, Jesus says, Behold, I have told you before. Uh, let me just tell you the verse. Um, it's Isaiah chapter 48, verses 3 to 5. Isaiah 48, verses 3 to 5. What you'll find in Isaiah is God, I, I call this the God test. God said, if you want to know who the real God is, it's the God that can prophesy. The God that can tell you what's going to happen before it happens and get it right every time. That's, that's how you know that it's the real God you're dealing with. No other God can do that. No, no other idol right, can, can produce this. And we see Jesus making a very similar claim. Behold, I have told you before. You want to know if I'm the real thing, the real deal? I'm telling you before it comes to pass. And wouldn't you know it, we're seeing many of these things take form and some of them even starting to happen now. So it lends even more weight to the argument for Jesus. All right, verse 26, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers. So he's hiding in some room, some house somewhere. Believe it not. Now again, I think men, the back of the disciples' minds, they might have been thinking, that's what Jesus was going to do. He was going to escape and hide somewhere for a while and then come back with this massive uh, attack plan and, and conquer the enemy. He's saying, guys, that's not the plan. If anybody tells you that, don't, don't think that's true. Verse 27, he, he is going to enlighten them on what his, his coming, his, the signs of his coming, what it will actually be like. Verse 27, for as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, 
as the lightning comes. So he, he's going to come at an instant. It comes very quickly. It comes, and what I find interesting here, it comes out of the east and shines even unto the west. Let me just take a moment to mention this. I'm not going to flesh this out, but this is a very interesting study if you ever want to look at this. As you read through your Bible, just try to, try to keep this in the back of your mind. See if you can add to this thought. When things move from east to west, they seem to be moving in a good direction. Things tend to work out. When things move from west to east, it seems as if you're going against God's plan. Now, there are multiple examples of this, and we just don't have time tonight to get in, into that. But let, I'll just refer you to one thing. In Psalm 19, sorry, I, since I can do it now with the computer, I might as well take advantage of it. In Psalm 19, uh, it says... Their, li their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom. So the sun, S-U-N, is like a bridegroom, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. What direction does the sun, S-U-N, run this race? East to west. East to west. His, verse 6, his going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it. There's nothing hid from the heat thereof. So look in Malachi. I'm showing you now Malachi 4, verse 2. This is a reference to the second coming of Jesus. But unto you that fear my name shall the S-U-N, do you see that? Capital S-U-N, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings and ye shall go forth and so forth. So the second coming of Christ Back in Matthew 24, it's, he says it's going to come like lightning. I assume, right, maybe, I, it wouldn't surprise me if there is a flash of lightning. He might be referring to the speed by which he comes back. At the very least, he's referring them heavenward. Right? In their minds, they're probably thinking Christ is down here. He's just a man on the earth that's going to come and conquer and that kind of thing. Right, that's that's the image in their head at least that he's down here and i think he's pointing to them he's pointing them to the heavens to say guys when i come back expect it to be something heavenly i'm going to be descending like the lightning from the sky uh matthew 24 verse 28 for wheresoever the carcass is there will the eagles be gathered together strange strange thing to mention right? Why mention this? For where, When the Lord comes back, all of a sudden he starts talking about the carcass. So there's dead bodies. There will the eagles be gathered together. So what's, what's he referring to? Well, we're, this is our attendance code for the night. I'm going to take you to Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to read a couple of verses. We'll get to verse 17. That's your attendance code. Revelation 19, verse 15. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now you know this is referring to the second coming. Uh, Revelation 19, 16. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now watch this verse, 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. The supper of the great God. Verse 18, that you might eat 
that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. So I want you to see how Matthew 24 lines up perfectly with, with Revelation 19 in this case. Uh, we're talking about that great, the supper of the great God. So when Jesus, what verse are we in? Verse 20. Uh, when Jesus is talking about the eagle being gathered together, we're talking about that supper. We're talking about the people have been trodden underfoot by Christ, and now the birds are called in to, uh, as the cleanup crew to, to take care of those carcasses. Matthew 24 and verse 29. Now, guys, if I'm moving too quickly, if you have questions about this, please make use of the chat section. I, I haven't seen any... Any uh, anything since the no sound, no sound. <laughs> we can't hear you. I'm so sorry for that. By the way, I'm get. I, I will. I will continue to work at this until I get better at it. But if if there's anything I'm I'm going too quickly on, please let me know. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now the powers of the heavens. That makes me think of Genesis 7, where it talks about the windows of heaven being opened. I think that we're talking something astrological here, that, that, that literally the cosmos changes. You have Jesus breaking through the atmosphere. It's going to shake the powers of, of the heavens. Um, when he says immediately after the tribulation of those days... so. We're talking about the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. The Antichrist has been attacking. You have Revelation 16. You have to bear that or remember that in this. The vials get poured out. So you have all those horrible judgments that are poured out on the earth. Earthquakes, islands falling. All of this stuff is happening. Jesus says, now after all of that, then you're going to see the sun and the moon and the stars get affected. Now, we're not going to spend long talking about this. Um, I think, yeah. I, here's a couple cross-references. Signs in the sun, moon, and stars. You read about this in Joel 2, verse 31. Peter quotes it in Acts 2, verse 20. And in Revelation 6, verses 12 and 13. You're gonna, it's going to line up perfectly with what we're reading about here in Matthew 24. But a lot of people get into the whole blood moon thing. You know, books, people write books on it and stuff. And, and, and I must admit, some of it's interesting when you read about the sequence and, and you can kind of discern a pattern for when these blood moons take place. But what happens is people, they, they study this out and they, the reason they do it is because they're trying to determine when Jesus is going to come back. And I... <laughs> As you'll see as we go on, Jesus is not trying to indicate any precise timing for his second coming. He's, he's giving us enough information so we don't get deceived and so that we can stay ready. But I don't think that you're going to achieve much by studying the pattern of the blood moons. What you do, what's prophesied here, right? The sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood, or not giving her light as it's mentioned in this passage, and the stars falling. Nature is going crazy at this point, right? Because its creator is breaking through the atmosphere, breaking into the cosmos and coming down to the world. And that's why all of these things are going to happen the way that they do. In verse number 30, we read, 
And he says, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. A lot of people have tried to figure out what is this sign? Some people say that you'll see a big cross in the sky. Other people say that there will be a special cloud formation. Like the, I heard one guy say it'll be the shape of a hand. I don't know, is he going to wave to you? I'm not sure what that's about. Um, When we talk about the sign of the Son of Man, Forgive me if this is oversimplifying it, but I think the Son of Man is the sign. Let me explain why I say that. In Matthew 12, they asked the, the, the Jews asked Jesus for a sign. He said, this evil and adulterous generation doesn't get a sign except the sign of the prophet Jonas. Well, what was it? It was something that happened. It was an event in Jonah's, in Jonah's life, right? He was swallowed by the whale and three days later came out. So the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, I think what he's referring to is that I am going to break through the sky. The event that I'm telling you about is going to take place. So after the Antichrist has done his worst and all these judgments poured out on the earth and billions of people dead, then these things up in the cosmos, up in the sky, the solar system, they're going to, you know, the sun, moon, and stars are going to be affected then you're going to see Jesus breaking through. Verse 30, Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. If you don't mind me slipping it in, how does that fit with the preterist view? Did all the tribes of the earth mourn in 70 AD? That just won't work, will it? But it works very well if you think about this in a futuristic sense, that Jesus is coming back from heaven physically, literally, visibly, and every, he, as he comes back with an army following him, riding on white horses, which is us, by the way, everybody on earth is able to see this. Which, if it is something happening way out there in the solar system, and it's massive, they, that makes sense. It could, I, I can see how that would be true. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And we don't have time to investigate it real deeply, but... Daniel chapter 7 uh, talks about the Son of Man coming in His glory, all of this. So if you want to learn more about or have a good cross-reference, Daniel 7 will, will speak to this very well. Verse 31, he says, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And now for a Jew, this makes this... For you and I, it may not speak as loudly, but if you're a Jew hearing this, you know that the trumpets have great significance. Back in Numbers 10, God commanded Israel to blow trumpets in a certain sequence. And, and depending on how you blow the trumpet, it would, it would mean gather together, we're going to have a town meeting, you know, the city hall meeting, or gather together, we're going to war. So these trumpets are very important for the Jews. He'll send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect not the body of Christ, but the nation of Israel. Gathered together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, some people have used this, can you believe, to to teach that we will live on the moon or even Mars before the second coming of Christ because they say, you see, people are going to be gathered from the ends of heaven. I I don't think it's anything that far-fetched. Guys, if you look out on the horizon, you can see where earth and heaven touch. It, I think it's just a very common figure of speech, the end of heaven, as far as you can see. Right? That's all that he's trying to get across there. But these angels are going to be sent out to gather 
the nation of Israel, Jews, back to their homeland. That was the promise, right? God promised Abraham, your seed is going to have this land, the land of Canaan. So the angels are deployed. When Jesus comes back, there's obviously the destruction at the Battle of Armageddon, the Supper of the Great God. But then these angels are also sent out to bring the Jews from anywhere on the earth that they can be found and bring them back to their their homeland. The angels are going to have some help. Let me show you quickly. Um, Give me just a moment. I want to make sure I... uh, All right, I'm going to show you these verses. I'm in Isaiah 66. We're going to begin reading in verse 15. He says here, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. We're talking about the second coming of Christ. Verse 16, For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Do you see how this lines up with what we're studying? Verse 17, They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse, shall be consumed together, saith the Lord. So these apostate Jews, they're they're not gonna God's not gonna have any mercy on them. They're gonna be consumed when he comes back. Verse 18, for I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. Verse 19, and I will set a sign among them and I will send those, now watch this, I will send those that escape of them. They escape all the wrath, all the destruction of the second coming. I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, Pull, and Lud, that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles of far off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory. They shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. So he takes these few people that survive it, sends them out however many they are. And look what they bring. Verse 20. And they shall bring all your brethren. So these Gentiles are sent out to go get Jews and bring them back to Israel. They shall bring your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. So the angels, I believe, are going to be overseeing this regathering of Israel, but they will have human help, if I'm understanding that passage correctly. All right, let's come back to Matthew 24 now. And verse number 32. He says, Now, learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. All right, this parable, wow, has it received a lot of attention from a lot of people. Let me explain quickly what is often said about it. The fig tree represents Israel. So when Israel begins to bud as a nation, when its branch, when his branch is tender and starts to put forth leaves. So when this nation starts to form again and bring forth fruit again, to show signs of life, that's a better way to put it, to show signs of life, then know that the end days have started. See, So they make the fig tree Israel, 
And often what they do is they say in 1948, Israel was officially declared a nation and they were allowed to go back to their homeland. And not all Jews did. They weren't completely regathered as you saw in this passage. But, but this is true. This is a historical fact. In 1948, there, there was a massive change in how the world viewed Israel. So people say in 1948, the clock started. And this generation that saw Israel... Sorry, I thought I heard somebody knock at the door. This generation that saw Israel form again, this generation will not pass until all of these things have happened. So what people have done is, is immediately they start studying the Bible to find out how long is a generation. Well, that's very tricky because it depends on where you're reading, right? That, that's a very fluid concept. Sometimes a generation can be 20 years, sometimes 30, sometimes 40, sometimes 70, sometimes 120. Some people have said just 100, 100 years. So that's a fluid concept. This is why you guys maybe remember, I've mentioned a book, somebody wrote a book that said 88 reasons that Jesus is coming in 1988. Right now that book was obviously, it was a bestseller for a while and then flopped. What do you think one of his premises were? 1948, the Jews form again as a nation. A generation is 40 years. So 40 years later, Jesus is coming, 1988. Right, so that, that was the thinking. Now, I appreciate that Israel is often referred to as a fig tree. I get the connection. But let's be careful. In Luke, when you get this parable, Jesus says this is true not only of fig trees, but any tree any tree. I, I don't think Jesus is trying to tell us something specific about the nation of Israel here. I think it's a lot simpler. In verse number 32, learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender, putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is not. Fair enough. How can you tell that summer is coming? You look for the leaves on the tree. That's how you know that the seasons are changing, right? Right now, the seasons are changing here in, in South Africa. We can see things starting to bud again. That's fine. That's, that's, I get it. So the point is, verse 33, So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, what things? All the things that Jesus has mentioned, starting from verse 4 up until this point. When you guys see these things start coming to pass, Know that it is near even at the doors. You asked me when I'm coming. You asked about the end of the world. When, when you start to see all these things happen, then you know the end of the world is nigh. So verse 34, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. What did he mean by this generation? Did he mean this generation that is hearing me say these things? I, I don't think so. Wait, I've talked about that. That's the whole preterist view. I don't think that'll work. When he says this generation shall not pass, is it the generation that saw Israel form as a nation in 1948? I, I don't think so. I don't think this passage can support that argument. The generation that sees the beginning of sorrows, verse 8, that sees nation against nation, earthquakes, pestilences in diverse places, that sees the abomination of desolation, the generation that sees all of that, that generation will not pass till everything is fulfilled that he's mentioned here. I, I think it's that simple. I don't think we need to read anything strange into it about the nation of Israel. 
Verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away. Well, out goes the Jehovah Witness teaching then. They believe that the earth is, it will be here forever. Not according to Jesus. Heaven and earth shall pass away. But my words shall not pass away. He is showing how definitive these prophecies are. Guys, there's no way this is going to fail. This is definite. This is more stable. What Jesus says is more stable than heaven and earth. That's an incredible statement. The weight of those words, that must have hit the disciples like a ton of bricks. Now, let's quickly talk about this. This is something we explore more in our manuscript evidence class because verse 35 is often used to, as a promise for the preservation of the Bible. And you can see why. My word shall not pass away. Let me give you a few different approaches for this verse. Some people say that when, when Jesus says, my word shall not pass away, he's referring only to the prophecies that he just made in chapter 24. Those prophecies will not fail. All right, at, at, at the very least, that's true. But then there's another step to it. They say, anything that Jesus said during his ministry. So you can take everything we have recorded, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Anything that Jesus said, period, not just these prophecies, those words will not pass away. They will stand true. They will stand the test of time and they will be preserved. And then some people extrapolate it completely to, to, to include every word that God inspired, right? So what, what did Jesus mean when he said, my word shall not pass away? I think that all three things are true. I think given the context, we're dealing with the prophecies. However, there is also very good reason to believe that it is also true that anything Jesus said that we have recorded and has been written down in Scripture, that is going to be preserved. And then I think it's also true to say that because Jesus is God and we believe in the inspiration of the, of the Bible, that it is right to say that these words are the words of Christ. That, that is a biblical phrase. Paul used that phrase, the words of Christ, not in reference to just what Jesus said, but in just a general reference to all the Word of God, to, to all of the Bible. It's in um, Colossians chapter 3, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. So I think all, th all three things, all three approaches can be true. Um, Jesus, by, bear in mind, isn't teaching a lesson here about the preservation of Scripture. So that's why I'm, I'm hesitant to say that's what he was trying to indicate when he said this. However, I do think that this verse can be used to support the argument that any words that Christ has inspired, and I'm speaking Christ as in God manifest in the flesh, that they shall not pass away. But there are other verses that speak about the preservation of Scripture, the preservation of the Word of God, and we'll deal with that more in, in the appropriate class. Right, verse 36, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. All right, so this verse has been used by many people, uh, Muslims, any skeptic, any atheist that, that says that Jesus was not God. They turn to this often and to try to prove that, you see, Jesus didn't have all knowledge. 
Um, in Mark's gospel, it specifically says, not the angels nor the son, but my father only. Uh, so they, they, they believe that this is a legitimate proof that Jesus is claiming not to be God. I don't think that's what's happening here at all. When we get to chapter 25, we'll talk more about this whole issue. We'll unpack it a little more. But it, I think this is part of Jewish culture. Anytime that a Jew, a, a Jewish man is going to get married, he doesn't know the date of his wedding. He leaves that to his father. And his father tells the son the day of the wedding, today's your wedding day, go get your bride. So in chapter 25, we're, we have this wonderful parable about people being sent out to say, the bridegroom cometh, the bridegroom cometh. Everybody just has to stay ready because you don't know when the wedding's going to take place. So I believe Jesus is simply submitting to the culture of, of these people, of his people. It's not that he couldn't know. It's not that this is a lack of deity. It's a willing a willing submission on his part to say, Father, I, I will excuse myself from knowing this because this marriage that's going to take place, this marriage of the Lamb up in heaven, um, I'm the son in this. I, I play the role of the son. I'll let you play the role of the father. So I think that's what he's getting at, but we'll, we'll talk more about that next time. The day and the hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. In Acts chapter 1, verse 7, the disciples asked Jesus, Will thou at this time uh, establish the kingdom, bring the kingdom back to Israel? And he says, It's not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. The Father has authority to choose the exact day and hour. And I wonder even if that day is still a fluid concept to a certain extent, right? This specific day and hour, I, I, I wonder, I wonder. Anyway, we don't have time to discuss all that, but let's look at this, the rest of the passage in verse 37. But as the days of, but as the days of Noah, the New Testament spelling is Noe, but we would say Noah. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. I'm running short of time, so forgive me. I really wanted to, to unpack this more, but I, I'm not going to have a chance to. So I'll leave this up and let you guys make notes if you'd like. But there are many things that uh, the end times share in common with the days of Noah. Directly in the passage, I have I've bolded, or how would you say that? Embolded? Emboldened? I... I <laughs> I have made those I've tried to make those words stand out, the first two entries here, because in the passage, these are the two things I think that Jesus is directly referring to. And then there are some other things. If we study this deeper, we can also discern these, these other truths. But iniquity abounding, right? That happened in Noah's day. It'll happen again as time goes on. And in Noah's day, they despised preaching. Now in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, we read that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Right? And, and obviously the people didn't listen to him. And that's also, I believe, uh, people despising, persecuting believers in the, in the tribulation time. That, that's linked to what we're reading. Some other things that are true, though. Right before the days of Noah, people were living a lot longer. Five, six, seven, eight hundred years, nine hundred years. That will be true after the second coming of Christ. Right, So they're slightly reversed there, but still... When we go back and study the days of Noah, we, we see a connection. 
Uh, Before the flood, angels were falling from heaven. We read this in Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2. The sons of God coming down and and, uh, going into the daughters of men. Revelation 12, a third of the stars, a a third of the angels are going to fall. So there's a connection there. Genesis 5, 24. Enoch, he walked with God and he was not for God, took him. There is a rapture, a, a deathless rapture. Somebody's taken to heaven without dying before the flood, which I think speaks loudly to the rapture of the church, people being taken to heaven without dying. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There's Enoch before Noah. There's not Noah, then Enoch. There's not Enoch and Noah happening at the same time. But we'll save more of that for another time. And global environmental changes. I hope I'm wording that correctly, but after the days of Noah, right, the topography, the map, cartography changed. The, 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 if somebody draws a map, I think the proper term is Pangea, right? The, the, the map used to look very different. Then after the flood, the continental drift and all of that, it's a very interesting study into that. But I think that after the, after the Lord comes back, there again, the maps are going to change. And... When you think about mountains falling, islands dropping into the sea, the map has to change. There's going to be a massive global environmental change. All right, man, I really wanted to get farther than this. Guys, I'm so sorry. I'm trying. I tried to go a little more quickly tonight. Let me just let me just get down to verse 42 and uh, oh, 41. Let me finish to 41 and then we'll be done for the for the evening. Um, shame, but that's all right. We're doing okay. We're doing okay. Francois, I think, is going to be able to finish up uh, very soon with Philippians. So I'm going to have Sunday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night to finish up the book of Matthew. So guys, please forgive me for my poor timing. I'm doing the best I can with this. Uh, All right, let's finish this passage. Verse uh, 38, but for as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So this was the direct reason, that Je- the primary reason that Jesus mentioned the days of Noah. The people were not prepared. Now there were two reasons they weren't prepared. Iniquity abounding and they despised the preaching. So that's why I've tried to point those things out on the screen. But they didn't know it until the Rain started to descend and God opened the floodgates. Then they went, oh my goodness, it's actually happening. That's exactly what's going to be, what's going to go on with the world when Jesus comes back. Even though they've heard people preaching about the second coming of Christ for 2,000 years, they blow it off and go, ah, you guys, you kooks, you, you apocalyptic preachers, and just take it lightly. One day it comes upon them. When it does, verse 40. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. All right, so people have often zeroed in or zoomed in on those verses and said, you see, that's the rapture. Now, let me, let me be clear. Verse 40 and 41, if you grab them out of their context and just put them on a separate piece of paper and read them by by their self, by themselves. 
I can understand why you would see the rapture in it. I really do. Because it, it gives an awesome description of what, what it might be like on the day of the rapture. Two people together, one's taken, the other, one's taken to heaven in the rapture, the other one's left on the earth. That, I, I get it. But in the context, remember, the rapture was a mystery that was revealed through Paul, not through Jesus. I don't think Jesus is referring to the rapture here. When he says two women, two men in the field, two women grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. In order to properly understand this, it's best, I think, to look at Luke's gospel on this. He says, I tell you in that night, there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken, the other left. Two women grinding together, uh, the one taken, the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. They answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, The one that is taken will be in heaven. See, that's not what he said. That's, that's not the point of this. They said, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. So I believe what you're reading here, one will be taken, the other left. We're dealing with the second coming of Christ, not the rapture. When he comes back, one is taken into the kingdom, the other is left in the field. And they are stomped on or destroyed. And then the eagles gather together for the supper of the great God. So I think that's what you're reading about here. Now, like I said, you divorce it from the context and, and it fits nicely, you know, if you want to speak about the rapture. But I think that's what Jesus is indicating, that people are in the field. It, this event of the Son of Man coming back, it happens so quickly that one is, one is taken, one is accepted, and the other one gets destroyed. One is taken into the kingdom. Remember that there are angels deployed. Matthew 13, we had a parable about that, that... They are, the wheat and the tares get separated. And I think that's what you have here. Two in the field, two at the mill, wheat and tares. Okay, so that's as far as I can take us tonight, as far as time. Uh, I don't, again, I, man, I, I wonder if the comments have failed or maybe I've done such a great job teaching tonight that you guys just don't have any questions. I don't know. If you do have a question though, now's the time to slip it in. I'm gonna go ahead and pray. And close for the evening. I hope this has helped. I, I tried to use the, the Bible side of this screen more tonight, so I hope it helped that you were able to see uh, more of the verses. Uh, please give me some feedback on this. Let me know if there's any ideas that you guys have. But if you have a question, slip it in now. I'm going to pray and close us for the evening. Father, thank you for the uh, time that we've been able to spend in the Word. Lord, help us to be uh, diligent, vigilant. Lord, we, we don't want to get caught up in conspiracy theories. and Lord, we don't want to be blown about with every wind of doctrine. We want to stay ready for your coming. Lord, we look forward to it. We do look forward to that sound of the trumpet. We could be gathered together with you, see you eye to eye. Lord, we look forward to that day. And until that day, please help us to stay busy about your business. What a privilege it is to serve you and to know you. Thank you for your great salvation and your great love. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.